Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. So we continue on with our scripture today. Jesus says, If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better if you, for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. This is the word of the Lord. So I don't know about you, but I have memories that go all the way back to when I was a toddler in my crib. A lot of people don't have memories that go back that far, but I do. They're quite vivid. And one of the things I remember the most about being actually in my crib is the prayers that my mom would say with me every night. Now, I'm going to say the prayer that we would say. You tell me if you know this. So it goes, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Super morbid prayer, isn't it? Like, when you think about it. As an adult, I was like, wow, I can't believe I prayed that every single night with my family. But it was important to me. It it actually, it left an impact on me that I remember it that well. Other things that I remember from my childhood are things like the first time that I walked into my dining room. And in my dining room, we had a chandelier, except it was crystal and It was in the afternoon, and so the light, it was shining in through the window in this particular way, and the light was being refracted off of the crystal onto the wall, and I remember just sitting there staring at it, not understanding what was happening, but thinking that it was quite beautiful. And you heard me talk about how my father, he gave me his kaleidoscope when I was young. I must have spent 20 minutes looking through that thing when I was a kid, watching it go round and round. You know what that word kaleidoscope means? It means the observation of beautiful forms. The observation of beautiful forms. I think that's a really, really cool word when you think about it. And the truth is, I think that children are much better. They are much more adept at observing the beautiful forms that are in the world around us than adults are. Adults, we tend to take in the big picture as we get older. But children, they will focus in on the most minute detail. Let me give you an example. So my wife and I will take our kids 
to the Botanic Garden. Who's been to Botanic Garden here in Chicago? If you haven't been, I highly suggest that you go. It is an amazing place to spend an afternoon, particularly on a really nice day. And so, Botanic Garden, they have all of these really cool places. So one place they have, if you've been there, is the Walled English Garden. Beautiful, beautiful place. I mean, it's just pristine. It's the way you would think an English garden should be. Another place you can go is to the Japanese Garden. And the Japanese Garden, it just blows you away with how beautiful that is. And you know from looking at it that it must have taken hundreds of people, thousands of volunteer hours to make it look like that. That just doesn't happen by itself. You have to have a lot of people working to make it look that way. So while I'm observing this beautiful scenery, though, my son Lucas, who's two, he's looking at the dirt at a rock, you know, <laughs> and he picks it up, and what does he do with it? He, like, he, you know, rolls it around in his hand. He likes the way that it feels, and then he likes the colors in the rock and the way it glitters in the sun. Now, why does he like that rock? Well, he's two, right? So at two, you don't have a whole lot of life experience under your belt. So a rock can seem pretty amazing, actually. But as adults, why aren't we so enthralled with a rock? Well, it's because we know rocks are everywhere, right? You can find them wherever you want to be. But to him, that rock, it's really, really impressive. Now, I think as adults, because of the contrast between, you know, myself and my son. We would sit there and say, well, we have a much more refined sense of what is beautiful as we get older. And this is true, I think, in terms of human art, you know. It's easier for an adult to appreciate a painting that a human has made than a child. But in terms of natural beauty, observing the beautiful forms in the world, children have adults beat hands down because they can see things in the world that are truly beautiful that adults just overlook all the time. And one of the reasons why we tend to overlook all these things is because we're jaded by our experiences. So, you know, children, if they look at the world in terms of vibrant color, we, as adults, we look at the world, I think, in terms of it being muted and gray. And this is because as we go from childhood to adulthood, we all have to undergo these negative experiences in our lives, right? I mean, this is part of growing up. You have to go through these negative experiences. And depending on who you are and how negative the experience is, it can really impact you. I think, generally speaking, the more negative the experience is, the more it damages the child's view of life. Let me give you an example. How many people in here grew up during the Depression? Okay. So... If you've grown up during the Depression, if you ever have a chance, you should talk to some of these people. They will tell you, because every time I've done a funeral for somebody who's grown up during the Depression, it has greatly impacted their view of the world. Greatly impacted it. Because of the circumstances they grew up with during that era. They grew up at a time where everybody was struggling. There wasn't a single person who they didn't know who wasn't trying really hard to get by. And a lot of them had to forego basics. You know, heat, clothing, sometimes even food. And this really shaped the way the children of the Depression saw the world, right? Nothing was a given. Everything could be taken away from you in a moment. I knew a lot of people, when Judy and I do these funerals, their children will often tell us, you know, mom or dad, they didn't trust banks anymore. Because the banks lost all their money the first time. So they'd take the money and they would literally put it under 
their mattress because that was safer in their opinion than putting it inside of a bank. And so what you see from children of the Depression is that ultimately they didn't grow up very long with the understanding that the world was an innocent, carefree place. They learned very early on that life could be quite difficult. Now I think most parents, if they had their druthers, they would allow their children to experience that carefree innocence well into their teen years. But that doesn't happen, does it? Because the world doesn't work that way. The fact is, children have experiences that not only strip them of their innocence, but those experiences can also very easily crush their spirit. And I think that Jesus was greatly attuned to this reality. Jesus was alive at a time when children were expected to be invisible. You know how we value children so much today? What do we say all the time? You hear it all the time. Children are the future, right? That's what they always say. Well, they didn't say that back then. And you want to know why they didn't say it? It's because ultimately, a lot of children didn't make it into adulthood. I want to tell you a little bit about the mortality rates in antiquity so that you understand what they were dealing with because you have to get into their mindset. So, assuming that you made it out of childbirth, which there wasn't a great likelihood you were going to do that. 25 to 40% of all births ended in the infant's death and a lot of times even in the mother dying. So you had a 25 to 40%, depending on where you were in the world, as to whether or not you were going to even make it out of childbirth. Your next hurdle is one year old. Because between zero and one, there were a lot of diseases that these children could contract that would kill them. But if you made it to one your level of survival spiked to 76%. So you just had to make it past that one-year mark, and you were now at 76% chance of survival. The next hurdle is 14 years of age. Because once you make it to 14, the likelihood of you dying from disease is only 5 or 6%. But not everybody made it to that point. And this is why many of the ceremonies celebrating the movement from childhood to adulthood and antiquity they took place at around the age of 14. Because if you made it to 14, they knew you were going to be sticking around for a long time. They had kind of just figured that out. Now, I think that this reality, it resulted in this deep psychological impact on the people in antiquity. Because everybody had grown up knowing somebody who had not made it into adulthood. Not everybody had gotten there. Sometimes it was a person in your family, sometimes it was friends, but not everybody had gotten to adulthood. Today, it is a rare tragedy for a child not to make it into adulthood. But back then, it was common. And so I think that their attitude towards children was really born out of a desire to not have to deal with the grief and the loss that was associated with it. Why would you want to invest all that emotional energy in someone who might not be there tomorrow? Come back and see me when you're older. Then I know you won't be going anywhere anytime soon. And so you look at this and you realize that it had a huge impact on the way they treated children. Children were treated no different from animals. And I'm dead serious when I say that. You know, today we balk at the idea that a parent would ever hit their child. But during Jesus' time, everybody beat their children. All you got to do is look at Proverbs to understand the, the predominant thinking of the time. Those who spare the rod hate their children, but those who love them are diligent to discipline them. At that time, 
They believed that if you did not discipline your child with violence, that your child was not going to grow into a good adult. But what's interesting is, is that Jesus, he had kind of a different point of view on children. I've told you all throughout this whole sermon series on Mark that a lot of stuff that Jesus talks about, it's not super unique. He was just inheriting it from other Jews who he had known. But when it comes to this, he actually is quite unique. His perspective on children is really not found anywhere else in the ancient world. So let's go into the scripture because you're going to understand a little bit more about this when you understand what's happening here. So Jesus He's with his disciples, and the disciples, they're having an argument about who is greatest, because, you know, we always have arguments about who's the best, right? And so they have this argument, and Jesus steps in. He's like, hey, guys, just so you know, just want you all to be clear that the best in God's kingdom is going to be the greatest servant. So that's what you have. So he's like, imagine the social hierarchy, the people at the top and the people at the bottom, and the people at the bottom, they're the ones who are going to be on top. And it's at this point that Jesus uses a sermon prop. Does any of the, do any of the children want to be a sermon prop for me? Because that's what he does. He finds a kid. Anybody want to be a sermon prop? Yes? No? Anybody? Okay. Well, anyways. <laughs> you want to walk with me for a sec? Hey, walk with me for a sec. Okay. I can't do this at the last service because we don't have any kids there. But we can do it here. So, what he does is he takes a child and he walks among the disciples. I don't know where he found this kid, but the kid was somewhere. So he picks him up and starts walking with the child. And what he says very directly to everybody is, he says, look, this child right here, if you treat a child well, it is as though you are treating me well. So children, he says children are his representatives, in essence. That's what he's saying, right? Now, most people, right, most adults, I mean, no offense, but we don't want children as our representatives. He wants them as his representative. And so he says, when you treat a child with love, care, and respect, it's as if by transitive effect you are treating him with love, care, and respect, and vice versa. When you mistreat a child, it's as if you are mistreating Jesus. Thanks for coming down with me. I appreciate it. So, think about that for a second. That's a big deal, that he would see children as his representatives, but he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says to his disciples, let the little children come to me and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Very truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. Now think about that for a second. Look at that last part very closely. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. This is crazy when you really look at it, because what he's saying is, is that in God's world, the model of success is a child. That's what it is. So you need to strive to be like children. Isn't that what we're always trying to get away from as we grow up, right? We don't want to be like kids anymore. He's saying, no, you've got to strive to be like them. You've got to strive to be like these people who have been essentially dismissed as being irrelevant by society. That's what you need to do. You need to become irrelevant. And then you're going to be in good shape when you get to God's kingdom. That's what he's saying right here. So, I think this opens up a very interesting question, since I assume most of you aren't going to be getting back to becoming children anytime soon. We need to ask, what is it about children that he wants us to emulate? Because there's obviously something there, right? Well, it would seem to me, because he's not real specific on this, that there's one thing that we can take away that he really values. 
which is a child's innocence. He actually says very specifically, he says, if any of you cause a child to stumble. Now, what does he mean by stumble? He means that if you cause a child to be hurt, if you hurt a child, if you cause them to sin, if you cause them to make mistakes, if you draw them in that way, then it would be better if you had a millstone hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Now, do you know what a millstone looks like? Have you ever seen a millstone? All right, that's what a millstone looks like. Okay, so they used it, millers would use it to grind up grain. Now, say, can you, you tie that thing around your neck, you jump into a body of water, you are not coming back anytime soon. You, you aren't. So let's just be clear on what Jesus is saying here, because you may not realize it. He's saying it's better for you to kill yourself. It's better for you to commit suicide than it is to face the consequences of what's going to happen to you if you end up causing one of these little ones to stumble. In fact, the only time in the entire Gospel of Mark that Jesus mentions the word hell is in reference to a child losing their innocence. That tells you how serious he is about this. Now, that word hell, let's talk about that for a second, because that's an interesting word. The word we translate as hell in the Gospel of Mark is the word Gehenna. Gehenna. And Gehenna, it is talking about this valley right here. It's referring to the Gehenna Valley. Now, the reason why he's talking about Gehenna, why we translate this word Gehenna as hell, is because you have to understand a few things about what Gehenna was. So the sewers of Jerusalem, they would dump out into this valley. So you can see how up top there, there's Jerusalem. And the sewers would kind of, they would empty into this. So this is another shot of the Gehenna Valley today. And you can see how it just kind of goes down deep, right? So... You have to understand how the sewers worked in Jerusalem. They're not like sewers that we have today, which are basically pipes under the ground that carry all the waste, right? doesn't work that way. These were huge tunnels, and these tunnels had tons of water that were flowing through them constantly. And so the citizens of Jerusalem, what they would do is, they would take all of their waste, it would be human waste, trash, and particularly food waste, like carcasses of dead animals, and they'd throw it into this sewer, and all this stuff would get shot down the sewer, and out into this Gehenna Valley. Now, what that tells you is the Gehenna Valley is what? It's a trash dump, right? But it's a little bit more than that, because it was quite a sight to behold. You see, there were people who lived in this valley, and what they would do is they would take all that stuff, and they would put it in piles, and they would light it on fire. So imagine, you're up on the outer edge of this valley, and you're looking down, and you're seeing... These people walking amidst all of these fires. That's what you're looking at. So it smelled horrible because you have trash and waste everywhere. There are fires burning. And then you have scavengers in the middle of all this. Because if there was a carcass that got into the valley that had any meat on it, the birds would be coming down. And then dogs were in the valley. And they were fighting each other to get a hold of this meat. And so they would gnash their teeth. At one another. That's where this whole thing of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, it comes from these dogs that would gnash their teeth at each other and they would fight over all of this. So this was quite a scene to behold, right? You're watching all this and on top of all that, you didn't want to go down in that valley because it was dangerous. The people who lived down there, if you went down, you probably weren't going to be coming back anytime soon. So the Jews, they used this as 
kind of an illustration of what God's punishment would be like. Does it sound familiar to you, what you've always known about hell, right? You've heard it's about fire, and you've heard it's a place that nobody would want to be. Well, it's a real place. It's a literal place. If you're thinking about hell as being some kind of spiritual reality that's out there somewhere, no. It was a literal, actual place. And what they believed, if you read the rabbinical literature, they will tell you that they believe that when God's kingdom came to earth, and remember, it's a physical kingdom. It's not like heaven or hell where your soul goes. It's right here where we are now. That people who were wicked, they would spend up to one year in Gehenna. It was a place of purgatory where they would be basically purged of their sins. And then after that one year, they were allowed to go back into God's kingdom. So this was a common illustration. Jesus isn't the first person to use it. He was one of many of Jews who used this illustration. But the difference is, Jesus, he is the only person to use Gehenna in reference to a child losing their innocence. And I think the reason why he did this is because of how he personally grew up. I have told you all in the past, in previous sermons, how Jesus grew up. But I want to tell you again, so we're all on the same page. So Jesus, when he grew up in his community, he was known as an illegitimate child. So in the Gospel of Mark, he is referred to by his mother's name. He's referred to as the son of Mary. He is not referred to by his father's name, which is the son of Joseph. That is a cultural indication to us that, in fact, Jesus was born out of wedlock. And this would have affected everything about how he grew up. He would have been basically blackballed from the moment he was born. Adults would have made it very clear that Jesus was different from all of the other kids around him. And his peers would have picked up on this derision, and they would have excluded him from social activity. And so if you want to understand how Jesus grew up, I can just summarize it into two words. Rejection, or we could say exclusion, and sadness. That was his childhood. Because he didn't have anybody around. There wasn't exactly a lot of people for him to spend time with. So his childhood was the result primarily of the way adults treated him. That's where it came from. And so he understood, I think better than a lot of people, that adults are the reason why children have bad experiences. A lot of the time. Right? And so what he's trying to say is, you as an adult, you have a lot of power over children. And when you use that power in the wrong way, then you're going to cause a child to stumble. Now I have to tell you that of all the teachings that I have read about Jesus, this is the one that scares me the most. I have two boys, and I can tell you that... As a father, I very often find myself in a situation where I feel like I'm using my powers in ways that Jesus would disapprove of. So there are days when I come home from my job and I'm super tired and I'm not very patient with my boys. And I'm, be honest, I snap at them very easily. I'll become angry when they do relatively minor things, like when they don't do what I want them to do, when they say things to each other they shouldn't say. I mean, I do that to them, and what's interesting is, when I do that, I can see immediately that I have taken something from them. 
They will look at me with these questioning eyes as if they don't really recognize who I am. Because I tell my sons I love them all the time. But in those moments where my actions do not match my words, it's as if they are slowly coming to the realization that there is something hollow about my affirmation of love. I know that my sons will at some point realize that this world is a very, very hard place to live in. But to think that I might be the one teaching them that reality, I'll be honest with you, that really makes my heart sink. And so I wonder, is Jesus talking about me in this passage? Is he talking about me because I have caused one of these little ones to stumble? Should I cut off my hand? Should I pluck out my eye? Should I cut off my foot? Because that is what Jesus tells us to do when we cause one of these little ones to stumble. And in those moments when I'm focused on the punishment aspect of this, I overlook the fact that there's a whole other side to this equation. And the other side to this equation is what Jesus tells us. He's like, we need, as adults, to look at these children as our examples. Because what does he say? If you're going to enter God's kingdom, what do you need to do? You need to receive it as a little child. I did not understand what he meant by this until I had children myself. Children are some of the most gracious, loving creatures on this planet. Because even when you hurt them, they still love you unconditionally. They will embrace you and they will forgive you for the wrongs that you have committed against them. Indeed, I believe that children are the very ideal of what it means to love. Because even when the world lets them down, they can still see the kaleidoscope color in the world. And so, as adults... I think we need to look at what they do, how they act, how they love us and forgive us, and realize that's what God wants from us. So my prayer for you today is that you might become like little children. May you observe all the beautiful forms in the world around you. May you see the love and forgiveness that children provide for you as being the example of how God expects you to show love and forgiveness to others. But most importantly, remember that when you show love and kindness to a little one, that not only are you doing the same for Jesus, but you are giving that little one a childhood that Jesus never had. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Prez family of faith.